we come before your word this, this morning, that it would be a time where we get to rejoice, that we get to think deeply about the gospel that doesn't just save us and get us into heaven, but transforms our hearts. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunities you give us, Lord, to love others. And we pray that as we consider that today, that we would be so humble, Lord, not justifying our lack of love, but wanting to know the joy that comes from loving well. We thank you. We love you. We praise you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to worship with you. Before we get started, um, uh, a few weeks ago we announced that on January 26th and 27th, it's going to be a Friday night and a Saturday morning, Lighthouse is going to host a two-day conference called Counseling Youth, Gospel Hope for Teenage Hearts. It's going to be by Dan Na. And we just want to let you know the registration for the conference is now open. Uh, we say counseling um, youth, uh, but don't kind of think of just like formal counseling you across the table from them. Uh, really, we want to help you and, and we want to grow in our ability just when, when the teens in our lives say something like, I'm so stressed or, or this is hard or, or I hate school or whatever it is, that we can then take the conversation from there to Christ. Um, and so that's really what we're going to be looking at during that time. Uh, it's really meant to help us better walk with the teens in our lives that we, that we love and that we're trying to serve. Um, so we would love to have you there, especially if you're a parent of teens or soon-to-be parent of teens, uh, or those of you who are working with teens. So for those of you who are youth workers, we want you there. Um, we are so thankful for the investment you're making in the lives of our young people. Uh, we hope this conference will be an encouragement for you. Uh, the conference is kind of a minimal cost, but for those of you in our youth ministry, uh, that are serving, it'll be free to you, and so we hope that this will be an encouragement. Uh, we think this is also a good conference to invite other people to. Uh, most of us with, with teenagers have friends with teenagers, and I'm sure that uh, all of us can use help as we think about what it means to, to shepherd our, our kids well. Um, if you sign up by January 5th, you'll get a complimentary copy of Paul Tripp's book, Age of Opportunity, um, and just to let you know, registration will close on January 21st. And so if you could be there, if you're going to sign up, please do. Uh, the earlier you sign up, the, the better it is for us, and it helps us to plan. Okay, with that, let's jump into this. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. For our Admin series, we have been thinking through that idea of tis the season and trying to answer the question, for what? In other words, while tis the season to be jolly... For a Christian, it's more than that. On one hand, it's tis a season to reflect and rejoice at the coming of our Savior. As Christians, Christmas should be more special and more personally meaningful for us than anyone because we know and understand the significance of Christ's birth. And yet Christmas isn't only personal. It's not simply about what we believe or what we feel. But like all of our faith, our understanding of who God is, who God is transforms how we live life. And so living in the love of the gospel and, and remembering and experiencing the love of Christ shown at Christmas should lead to a desire to make that love known to others. And so for the last few Sundays, we've looked at tis a season to, be, to give and be generous, tis a season to serve, and this morning we'll look at tis the season to love. Now most of you realize that love can be hard. When I thought about, okay, who is hard to love? the first person that came to mind was like someone from like 25 years ago. And that tells you something about it, right? It, it, I don't know if it still bothers me, but it, I just remember it. Uh, I was working for my brother's company at the time, putting myself through college. And um, in one of the neighboring warehouses, uh, there, there lived a guy. So he was renting it out. He lived there in the warehouse. Um, he didn't take showers too often, which was 
right, right away. There's one of the problems. Uh, but when he did, he would just do it in the front in all his glory with a hose, right? And so the nickname we gave him was Naked Man, okay? So we were like, hey, guys, don't go outside. Naked Man is taking a shower. <clears throat> and he was hard to love. Um, uh, he, he was at times... Um, inebriated or things like that. And so you would, you would talk with him and the conversations wouldn't go well. One time I was sharing the gospel and, um, and then he said, but don't you hate? And in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, this is, this is good because maybe this is like a real concern for him when it comes to the faith and we can talk about this and, and I can tell him about Jesus. And he says, but don't you hate when you see something and you think it's angels, but it's really a dolphin? And I was like, there's nothing in seminary that prepares you for that conversation, right? It's not like like, none of you in this room have had to deal with that theological quandary. Maybe the worst was that he would sometimes play a game called What If. That's what I called it. And so he would say something like, what if I put a gun to your head? Right? It's not a fun game. And so I'd be like, well, Bill, because we didn't call him naked man to his face. Um, I said, well, Bill, um, that, would, that, would, that would not be good. Right? And I'm trying to just, like, you know, bring him down. But I do remember kind of that feeling of dread of him coming around. Like I'd see him walking over to the warehouse because he was bored, he wanted to talk, wanted to play those games that weren't very fun, and <clears throat> just not wanting him to come, not wanting him to be around, dreading the fact that I'd have to have a conversation with him, knowing as a Christian, I should probably witness to him, I should probably talk to him, and it was no fun at all. I think for most of you, uh, you have people you struggle to love. Now, contrary to my lack of love, for Christians, love is truly meant to be a beautiful thing. It's meant to be so different than the world's love. It's, it's a unique sacrifice and kindness and care. The way that we define love here at Lighthouse is it's an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person that seeks the other's highest good, even at the cost to self. And importantly, this doesn't mean that we always do what people want, but it's this idea that we're really going to seek the best for people. I mean, as parents, often we have to make loving decisions that our children don't like. But the picture I want you to consider just as you think about this Christmas season is how can we sacrifice and serve? How can we be patient and kind? How can we forgive and show compassion? And again, we, we do it throughout the year, but what could you do during this time of year? There's so many opportunities to love in our generosity, opportunities to love people who we don't see very often, opportunities to love our families in a busy season, who just how we serve them, opportunities to share about Christ. In fact, around Christmas, it would almost seem like it should go without saying, like, why shouldn't we love, right? It is the season to be jolly and deck the halls and enjoy the world. We have family get-togethers and Christmas parties. It would almost seem like it's the most natural thing to do this time of year. I mean, have you ever seen a Hallmark movie, right? They're, they're, I, I've seen many already, and I'm not ashamed to say that. And they're all about love, right? There's usually two things going on. There's going to be a snowball fight, and there's going to be a love story of some sort. And, and you know where it's going. There's at least none that I've seen have been a surprise yet. So why spend a Sunday talking about love? First, we need to talk about it because it's one of the most important things we do. Right? After loving God, it's the most important thing we do. We don't really get to choose whether we love or who we love, we are called as followers of Christ to love everyone, even our enemies. And that leads to the second reason we need to talk about it. Because quite simply, loving others is hard. At times, it's one of the hardest things that we do. And granted, all of us have people who are easy to love, people who we enjoy being around, people who build up and, <clears throat> and bring us a measure of happiness. But I'm guessing all of us can think about people who are hard to love. For some of you, it's, it's people right around you. It's 
It's the person sitting next to you. I mean, don't, don't, look, don't look to the right or left, just right here. Just keep looking, because it's going to be awkward if you look to the person next to you. For others, it's that condescending coworker. It's that hurtful friend. Right? If given the chance, I doubt it would be hard to think about both the kind of the general types of people we struggle to love, right? The complainer, the prideful, the condescending, maybe the, the person from the other political party. Nor would it be hard to find, think of specific people we're struggling to love, that harsh relative, that difficult person at church, a critical boss, maybe someone who hurts someone you love. In fact, for, for some of us, what makes Christmas so hard is that there are people who are hard to love. Think of these Christmas examples, like kids who aren't as grateful as you would like, or spouses who aren't as helpful as you think they should be, or customer service who's not as polite as you want them to be. Or maybe you'll beat your in-laws, and, and they're fine. You get along with them, but you hate that you're not spending that time with your family, right? And it's just so hard in that sense to be, it's a little harder to be truly loving and engaged. And yet for some of you, Christmas is, is way harder than that. Right? You'll, 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 you'll see people and you have to answer those questions like, hey, why aren't you married yet? Or, or when are you going to start having kids? Like people not knowing, like how hard it can be to hear those questions sometimes. Maybe you'll have to go to a get-together and see that parent who was verbally abusive. Or you'll, you'll be at a Christmas party for work and you'll have to be kind of all smiles, even though you know how your boss treats you all year. Or you have to see an ex-spouse for some event for your kids and it's going to be painful. And really... Beyond Christmas, often something that makes just life difficult is that there are people who are hard to love. So all that to say, I'm sure all of us can think of people we feel are difficult to love. In fact, take a moment and, and think specifically of who that is for you, right? Like who comes to mind? And my hope is that as we go through God's word this morning, you can try to specifically consider how the gospel applies to that struggle. I used to say to them, like, write the name in the margins, but I, I was like, my mind, I just picture, like, you know, a husband just listening to a sermon, he looks down and like, well, why is my name in the margin? So I don't want, like, I don't want that to happen. So just keep it in your mind. Who are you struggling to love? So how then do we grow in love, right? Knowing that we should love is pretty easy. How do we actually grow in love? That can be hard. Well, in John's first letter, he tells us, right? He, he writes this letter to focus on what it really means to be a believer, and he focuses on kind of this, this life centered on the gospel, a life that, that's deeply rooted in the truths of Scripture, a life that is faithfully living for Christ in obedience, and a life that, that lives out a powerful love, right? That is one of the marks of a Christian, is the way that we love others. And then he tells us that how we grow in that love is really by knowing and experiencing the love of God through the gospel, and so let me read to you 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. It's, it's fairly well known, but John writes this, We love because he first loved us. Okay, we love because he first loved us. Now, as, as we go through the passage, we'll look at it in its context. But for now, here's the key idea I want us to consider. Gospel love encourages and empowers us for the hard work of loving other, others. Gospel love encourages and empowers us for the hard work of loving others. So three reasons gospel love enables us to love. First is this, gospel love offers hope for change. Like I mentioned, lo loving, like I, I said, loving is hard. You probably felt this. You know you're supposed to love. Maybe even you want to love, and yet it seems so hard to love. Maybe at times it even seems impossible. Are, are you struggling to love? And maybe it's simple. Maybe like it's just not getting so angry with your kids, or it's maybe having more of a servant's heart at your home or it's just catching up with your parents more often as they get older. 
like you know you should do better, but you're not making the progress that you would like. Or, or maybe, it, again, it's more serious than that. Maybe you struggle to love someone because of how badly they've hurt you or because there seems to be so little love in them or, or you don't feel like you're just wired that way, like you've just never been that kind of person or, or you've tried to love, but you just can't seem to overcome your emotions. And so you feel like you can't. I've counseled enough people who have suffered deeply at the hands of others to know that when they say, I can't love them, those words aren't uttered tritely. Maybe even as you sit here, you think about how truly and deeply you were hurt or betrayed by someone else. And so it's hard to even fathom the idea that you could ever love them like the Bible says you should love them. Well, understand that though the Bible acknowledges our hurt, it doesn't leave us there. Right? Because in fact, our, our passage this morning tells us that there is true hope um, that there's true hope. We, we can love because God first loved us. Really think about that, right? You're not hopelessly stuck. Our Savior is too great and the gospel is too powerful and our Heavenly Father is too loving to leave us wallowing in our lack of love. We can love because he first loved us. Now to appreciate this, we have to first realize what it is that ultimately makes it hard to love and even at times feel impossible to love. Because usually we have our reasons, right? It's hard to love because of, again, of genetics. That's how I'm wired or how we were raised. Like we always just dealt with things that way or because of circumstances, right? It's hard to love my family because I'm so tired or I'm so stressed. But most typically, we would explain our lack of love based on who the other person is or what they've done. In other words, if someone were to ask you, okay, why are you struggling to love them? Usually you would just give them a list of reasons why it's hard to love them. Well, what they did, how they act, who they are, their personality, their sin, their failures, their cruelty, their arrogance. But if we're ever going to overcome our lack of love, we have to realize that all those things are, are really context. I mean, they're real and they're hurtful and they're hard, but they're not determinative. They, they are the circumstances within which we get to choose whether we will love or not love. So what is the real problem? especially in light of the fact that God doesn't just want us to love and call us to love, he, he created us to love. It's, it's kind of hardwired into our spiritual DNA. But if that's true, then why is it so difficult? What happened? Well, as you know, sin happened, right? It, it entered the world and it ruined everything, especially relationships. Right? Because of sin, relationships are no longer this platform to, to love and give and sacrifice. Sin, sin takes that love that it's meant to be directed upward to God and then outward toward others and bends it in on itself. And what this means is that relationships go from this opportunity just to, to give to becoming a means of gain. Like we, we often, we, we go into relationships with kind of that unspoken idea of like, what's in it for me? We focus on, on what I want, what, what, what is my kingdom? And so relationships become about the pursuit of meaning or companionship or pleasure or respect or identity. When you think about the, the, maybe that difficult relationship in your life, what do you want out of that? What are you hoping for? What are you frustrated that you're not getting? What do you feel you need from the other person? Now that inward bent makes it hard enough to love, but when sin does that to everyone, it means in our relationships, we want something, and the other person wants something, and it becomes this battle for kingdoms. And I think most of us recognize that. When someone is hard to love, it's because they are doing what they are doing because of what they want, and concurrently, we are frustrated because of what we want. 
what then compounds the problem is that the sin of our hearts doesn't just lead to a lack of love, but it then blinds us to our lack of love. Like we just think so little of writing off that annoying coworker. Like maybe you think, well, it's loving that I don't talk to them. <laughs> like I don't say anything mean at least. We think little of excluding someone at school so others will include us. We, we think little of the cold shoulder we give our spouse because obviously they deserve it. We think little of speaking poorly about our in-laws because they don't act like we demand. We think little of fighting with our siblings or being bitter at an ex-spouse or getting angry at a subordinate who drops the ball. I wouldn't be surprised if many of you, like me, are struggling to, to love someone and at times it just seems okay. It seems justified or right or fair or understandable or just even ordinary. I mean, so the Bible says, like, love everyone, even your enemies, and then we think, well, but I think God understands I don't love that person. But you see the point here. Quite simply, as fallen creatures in a fallen world, love is very hard. Now, this may not sound hopeful. Maybe you're, you're wanting, like, three easy steps to becoming more loving, and, and to this point, all you're hearing is about the ruined nature of our fallen world and the fact that your struggle to love is actually not the other person's fault. It's your fault. But understand, this is really, um, truly hopeful. I mean, it's, it's life-changingly hopeful because the reality is if the problem were genetics or were circumstances or were the other person, there is little hope because those things may never change this side of heaven. But if the problem is the sin of our hearts, there is true hope for change because that's what the gospel promises to do, transform our hearts. Does that make sense? John writes this. He says, we love. He doesn't say we should love, we have the potential to love, or hopefully we will love. He simply says we love. The tense is ongoing. It's almost like he's saying we are loving people. Like we're continuously loving. And he's getting to the idea that while love is not natural to fallen humanity, it is natural for Christians because this is what Christ did. We love because he first loved us. The, the, the love that is so um, that is not ordinary in the world becomes then ordinary for us because that's what the gospel has the power to do. We are able to love. Love is natural because God loved us. Now, that idea of God loving us is not about some fond affection, like, like it's just a feeling, like he looks at us and said, oh, humans are so adorable. I know some babies look, I know some people look at babies and immediately think, oh, they're like, they're so cute. But it's not true. Not all, not all babies are are cute. One of my kids came out looking like Gollum from Lord of the Rings, and I'm not going to say which one, but she did. But uh, where, where, and so like, where's sometimes it's endearing to call your kid precious. My wife hated when I did that. Like, oh, my precious. Like she didn't, she wasn't, she wasn't a fan. But this is not God looking at us and saying, oh, like they're so adorable. I just have these feelings of affection for them. We are definitely more Gollum-like. And when John mentions, so when John mentions God's love, he, he's specifically talking about the love that saw us in our sin, in our ugliness, and yet sent Jesus to both save us and transform us. Look what he says in verse 10, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So love wasn't simply a feeling, it's what God did for us by sending his son into the world. That's what we celebrate at Christmas time, so that he would ultimately die to save lost sinners. And we need this because we're sinners who deserve punishment. We deserve wrath. We deserve hell. But Jesus came, as it says in the passage, to be the propitiation. This, 
This means that he was the sacrifice that bears the judgment we deserve. He, he suffered hell so that we wouldn't have to experience hell. He died and took the punishment that we deserve so that we can experience the favor of God. And yet understand, this is really important. John's point isn't simply that the love of God saves us to get us into heaven. Like that's all he's talking about. Like now you don't get to go to hell. Now you get to go to heaven, right? He's sharing it within this context to talk about the idea that it changes us so that we love others. That's what the gospel does. It it takes that inward looking love and then again bends it upward towards God and outward towards others. In fact, look at what he says in verse 13. He says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. In other words, again, the point of salvation wasn't just to get us into heaven. He, he wants to change us. In fact, before John jump, jumps deeper into a discussion on love, he mentions that as believers, we've been given the Holy Spirit. In other words, God took our love for others so seriously that he entered into us in the person of the Holy Spirit to allow us to love others as he's called us to love. And then it makes sense of why he ends with this. And verse 19 and 20, he says that we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has, he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In other words, it's impossible to be saved and not to pursue love because when we're saved, we're empowered to love. Now, one thing this means is that, that we shouldn't say we, we can't love because really what we're saying is we won't love. I think it is very accurate to say it's hard to love. I'm struggling to love. But when we say I can't love, we're often just saying I've, I've just given up and I refuse to love. But that belief doesn't, an attitude doesn't recognize the hope of this passage. I mean, if you're a believer, you can love. You're not stuck. You can grow. You can honor Christ. And importantly, as we'll discuss later in this uh, passage, this is truly a good thing. I mean, if you think love is something you have to do, like you're hearing this message and going, oh, great. Like the pastor's telling me I got to go love my aunt and she's so hard to love. Then you're missing out not only on how good love is, but how miserable a lack of love is. In other words, understand your lack of love is not only wrong, but it's robbing you of joy. But the gospel changes all of that. Think about it. Because of the gospel, you can overcome your anger and you can appreciate and live in the joy of, of loving well. Because of the gospel, your heart can be at rest despite how someone else is acting. Because of the gospel, you can look forward to that family get-together. Because it's not about people maybe you struggle to be around, but it's about people that, that you get to love. You get to go out, you get to show them Christ. Because of the gospel, you get to look to the future confidently. Because you know that no matter what someone does, you're safe. I think one more blessing of getting to love well that we see in this passage, and this is really the focus of our next our, our message next week, but you can be an incredible witness to the power of the gospel by how you love someone who is hard to love. It's almost like someone should, should look at us and in a sense think, okay, look how they love. Like, where does that come from? And I'm not just saying that, but John points that out in our passage. In verse 12, he says this. He says, no one has seen God. John Stott points this out. He says, the invisibility of God is a great problem. It was already a problem to God's people in the Old Testament. Their pagan neighbors would taunt them saying, where now is your God? Their gods were visible and tangible, but Israel's God was neither. Today in our scientific culture, young people are taught not to believe in anything which is not open to empirical investigation. John continues though. He says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, 
God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Stott then says this, in other words, the invisible God who once made himself visible in Christ now makes himself visible in Christians if we love one another. It is a breathtaking claim. The local church cannot evangelize proclaiming the gospel love if it is not itself a community of love. You see the connection, as as one pastor writes, the unseen God reveals himself through the visible love of believers. Right? We, we, We live in a world that dismisses God because they can't see God. And as Christians, we get to be this visible testimony that there is this great God in the world who brings salvation to the lost and transforms lives. I like the way James Boyce puts it. He says, the person who is born of God is a window through which the love of God shines into the world. So what does this mean? There should be something so special, so unique about our love that people get a glimpse of the Almighty through it. So what does your love say about God? I mean, if your life is preaching a sermon about God in your workplace, what do you think the message is? Or as you think about your unsaved relatives, what do you think they understand about God when they see your life? What about your kids? Or I understand your ability to love preaches a message to them. How do you speak about their flaky friends or their coaches or teammates or, or about people in church? Your ability to love tells them something about God. And I hope we see the grace of this. I mean, love is difficult, but in it, we actually get to make the invisible visible. And we, just just imagine that. We get to show people who God is. Taking a step back before we move on, I hope you see the hope of this passage. On one hand, you you have to love. It's, It's not an option. The blessing is you can love. You're you're not stuck. There is no personality flaw, no situation, no sin so great that the gospel cannot bring radical change to your heart. And so you need to believe this. Otherwise, you'll be tempted just to be okay in your lack of love. But just trust that the power of God as seen in the gospel offers hope to sinners uh, like you and me. Second point is the gospel love displays the trustworthiness of God. Now, the fact that the gospel can empower us to love is encouraging, but that doesn't exactly tell us how to change. So why don't we love? I mean, if sin's the problem, the gospel addresses sin, why do I still struggle? Right? It's right to love. It's better to love. We're generally unhappy in our lack of love. We have every spiritual blessing at our disposal to love. Then why don't we love? And often it's about our lack of faith. It's about our fears and our worries. Does that make sense? I mean, think about how our fears and worries hinder our loves. For example, we might struggle to love someone because we're afraid to be hurt. That's a big one, right? We we know there's a cost to love and we don't want to risk the pain. Or or to take it a step further, we we don't want to be a doormat. We're fearful that if we love well, perseveringly and sacrificially, it'll mean people will walk all over us. Or we might struggle to love because we're afraid of the consequences. Like if I'm super patient and, and forgiving with my spouse, maybe they just won't even care about their sin anymore. They'll just keep doing it. Or if I'm patient with my in-laws, will they take advantage of me? Or if I'm generous with the church, will I have enough money to do what I want? If, if I dress someone's sin in love, will they be mad at me? If I share the gospel at work in love, will I be canceled? Or maybe most simply, we struggle to love because we fear the cost. For example, maybe, trying to, maybe just imagine loving someone who seems like they will never change just seems so hard. Like, I'm supposed to spend the next decades of my life loving this person. 
Or maybe you feel like you're constantly sacrificing for people in the church or, or constantly giving yourself to your spouse or to your kids and it just seems so tiring. Or maybe it's the cost of sharing the gospel with your family. And so we're afraid of the cost, but, but, but these fears and worries will hinder us from really loving well. I mean, if that's what I'm worried about, then am I actually going to put myself out there and sacrifice and serve? So think about the person that you're struggling to love or persons. What comes to mind when you think about them? What are you worried will happen? Like, what do you fear? Like, okay, if I love them, I'm worried about this happening. And is that stopping you from loving well? So how does the gospel speak to these fears and worries? Well, John writes this. He says, we love because he first loved us. In other words, what, what allows us to love isn't like our willpower or our ability. It's not really dependent on circumstances or what someone has done. It's God's love that allows us to love. You can love because God first loved you. Now notice what John says right before this in verses 17 and 18. He actually talks about our fears. He, he says this, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. First of all, realize that the primary fear that John is talking about is the fear of judgment in hell. How the gospel frees us from those fears. That's what we mentioned in the last point. In the gospel, we're forgiven of our sins and freed of judgment and promised heaven. But it does kind of bring to question bring to mind the question, why does John bring up this discussion in a, in, a, in a passage on loving others? Why talk about, okay, you don't have to worry about hell when he's telling us to love people? Like if, if your kid were to say to you, like, oh, I'm having trouble loving my classmate. Have you ever said, well, you can love them because you don't have to fear going to hell? Like my kids would be like, bruh, that got dark. And they would call me bruh. Right? It, it's an odd connection. You can love because you don't have to fear hell. But realize John isn't taking a tangent. Like he's not just talking about the gospel for no particular reason. His point is to show the love and faithfulness of God, right? Specifically how his love, as demonstrated and proven in sending Jesus Christ to, to be our Savior, means that he is absolutely trustworthy. So even as, okay, as we, if we're going to love, we need to trust God. If you want to love people, you're going to have to trust God. And this passage is reminding us, you can trust God. And that's why he points out that in the gospel, God is taking care of our greatest fear. Like he's taking care of judgment, and if he's done that, we can trust him with everything. Like, like you see the picture? If he's taking care of the biggest threat, then we can trust him with every other little threat in our lives, knowing that he'll deal with them in a ways that is wise and powerful. It's kind of like in Romans 8.32 when, when Paul writes, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, if God gave us the greatest gift at the greatest cost, can we trust that he'll give us everything else we need? And similarly, in this passage, the gospel tells us that if God takes care of our greatest fear, then we can trust him with every lesser fear. He is always there in our struggles. And this doesn't mean that he'll shield us from our struggles or shield us from suffering, but we don't have to fear them because God has a good and kind plan through it all. And so kind of look at the big picture of what's going on here. Remember, the, the, the big point is love of one another. That's from verse 7 all the way to the end of the chapter. But to encourage us in that, he reminds us over and over, God loves you. 
And if we believe in that love, and if we trust in that love, and if we live in that love, then we don't have to live in fear, and we are free to love others. So kind of think through that idea. Earlier I asked you, what are the fears that come to mind when when it comes to loving? Like, what do you worry about happening if you do? What What are you afraid of? Now consider this. God's love is so powerful and so relentless that he sent his only son into the world, not just to be born on Christmas Day, but to die on Good Friday for you. And that same love is just as powerful and relentless in your life right now. And so let me ask you, like, what do you really need to fear? What is beyond God's power? What escapes his care? You never have to fear loving well. It's more like our, our convoluted, kind of self-centered, sinful hearts that think, well, God, if I love, then my world could just turn out to be a mess, and it'll be horrible, and all these bad things will happen, and we think about the worst-case scenario. It's almost like we think God's going to call us to love and then punish us for loving. But Scripture is clear. The greatest blessings come from living in the gospel and living out of the gospel. God isn't going to punish us for loving people well. He'll bless us. Not necessarily through good circumstances, but the spiritual blessing that leads to, to, uh, to knowing the greatest promises and experiencing the greatest peace. We have to trust that loving others isn't just right, but it is better. In fact, if we should fear anything, we should fear not loving. Because while God will never punish us as Christians, right? Jesus took all of the punishment we deserve. We should expect that in love, he'll discipline us. Right? He loves us too much to ignore our lack of love. Like in the same way that if, you're, if your child was lacking love, you wouldn't be indifferent to it, neither will, will God be. And some of you are kind of feeling that. Like you're feeling the, the pain and the brokenness of life because you're refusing to love others. Now as a side note, there are some of you who are clearly the people who are difficult to love. So we act like, like in Lighthouse, we're all good. It's out there, right? So other people are difficult to love, but let's be honest, it includes us. But some of you in particular are just failing in your marriage because of your selfishness, or you're failing in your parenting because of your anger, or you're failing in your relationships because of your pride. And you're wondering why like, people don't do better, why they aren't loving you well. But believe that in your sin, you're inviting God's discipline. And so make no about, doubt about it. You may demand people love you, but God is going to love you. He is loving you. And it may be a love that is very painful. And so even now would be a good chance to think through not just how do you love other people, but how do you become someone who loves in a way that God is calling you to love? Back to our point, there is a better way. We can love well by trusting that God has a good and kind plan through whatever happens. And this is important because while we don't want to, um, we don't have to fear when we trust God, that doesn't mean we get to avoid pain and suffering. In fact, if you choose to love well, to a degree, you will invite pain. And that makes sense because love is about sacrifice. So if I'm going to love, I'm going to sacrifice, there's going to be a cost to love. There always is. In fact, if there is no cost to your love, then that's a good chance it's not real love. Think about parenting, right? Like you don't, you you go into parenting, you don't think like, I'm going to parent, there's going to be no pain. Like parenting often causes some of our deepest hurts. But that sacrifice, that service, that perseverance, that kindness, that patience, that's love. But importantly, again, we don't have to fear the pain because God has a loving plan in it all. So even if you do love and your life somehow gets turned on end, trust that God is there. 
He's present, he's active, he's working, and he intends it all for your good. I can see this in my own life. I've, I've had to try to, to love selfish people. And you know what it did? It revealed to me my own selfishness and really how it is better to give than to receive. I've had to love people who've said hurtful things. And you know what showed me? It showed me my pride and that the greater blessing is resting in who God is. I've had people take a lot of time and energy and emotional bandwidth, and it just showed me how strong God is and how he allows me to be strong through him. I've had love people that's resulted in circumstantial difficulties, and yet through it all, God reveals that he's always doing more than I expect or even hope. And let's be honest, and I'm serious in this, I'm, I know that I'm also the difficult people for other people to love. In other words, there's a chance that I'm the hard person to love and God has put me into your life for your good. You're welcome. Right? So you can pray for my wife. But do you see the point? Like, if, if you're going to love well, it's going to take faith. You're going to have to put yourself and even your family in the hands of God and say, I trust that loving isn't just the right thing to do, but it is the better thing to do. Lord, I believe you have a purpose to it all. All right, last idea. God, gospel love redirects our misdirected, deficient, and dangerous loves. Now, often when we focus on loving others, we become very horizontally focused. So in other words, we think about what we should do or what they should do or what they have done or what we want them to do. We focus on the wrongs and hurts we've experienced. We consider what we should say or we think about what we want to say. But understand that our struggle to love others is first about our struggle to love God. Again, our struggle to love others is first about our struggle to love God. Now, this may sound odd because you might be thinking, well, that's not true, right? God is easy to love. It's my annoying coworker that it's hard to love. But understand this, the, reason, the real reason people are hard to love is often because they threaten or attack or even devastate our idols. Okay, the real reason people are often hard to love is because they threaten, attack, or even devastate our idols. Let me illustrate this way because you knew I would have to have at least one Shohei illustration. Um, so obviously when he signs with the daughters, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty ecstatic. Like, he's great. Oh, man, greatest, one of the greatest players I've ever seen. Support him, cheer for him. Um, I'm, I'll, I'll buy a T-shirt, which I, I guess will help pay for that $700 million that we're going to pay him. But do you know what I texted my brothers when I initially heard that he was going to Toronto a couple of days earlier? He's dead to me. Okay, he is dead to me. Which I'm, I'm not sure pastors are supposed to say that. Like, they didn't talk about that in seminary. I'm, I'm assuming not. But isn't that a picture of what we do? My blue idol is threatened, dead to me. I hate him. Blue idol served, I love that guy. Like, I'm, uh, yeah, I, I will name my next born after him. I don't think we're having any more kids, but it, it's him. It's Shohei. Now, that life-changing illustration cleared up things for, like, three of you. So, more biblically, think about it this way. An idol is anything we worship and hope in in the place of Jesus. We can worship comfort, reputation, justice, or fairness, success, people's approval, and admiration. And people become hard to love when they mess with those things. Does that make sense? Like, it's hard to love our kids through our patience when they threaten our idol of comfort. It's hard to love the coworker who is incompetent because it threatens my idol of success. It's hard to love my parents who have all these rules when they threaten my idol of freedom. It's hard to love the ex-spouse that threatens the idol of my kids. It's hard to love the husband or wife who treats me poorly and threatens my idol of fairness. 
So think about that. My struggle to love others is about my love for my idols. Meaning that my struggle to love others is really about my struggle to love God. Because I love something more than God, and that's easily threatened by people, I'm going to struggle to love. So consider your life for a moment. Consider the person you're specifically struggling to love. What are they threatening? What are they attacking? What are they destroying? They're not threatening Christ. I mean, if he's the most important thing to you, you don't have to worry because they're not threatening Christ. They're not attacking Christ. There's nothing they can do to Christ. But what are they really threatening in your life? And this kind of makes sense, too, of why we so often make love this transaction. By that, I mean we will love others as long as they don't threaten our idols, or even better yet, if they serve our idols. But if they don't, then we have a problem. So whether we realize it or not, we make love a transaction. We have this mental calculation of whether we will love and serve someone else based on whether they don't just love and serve me, but love and serve my idols. I mean, think about what we, when we describe someone as easy to love. The boss who praises me, the spouse who helps me around the house, the kids who are obedient, the customer service person who fixes my problem, the friend who's always willing to listen. Realize that often what makes them easy to love isn't simply that they love and serve you, but they love and serve your idols. And if you're not sure if that's true, just think about what happens when the opposite occurs. The boss who critiques you, the spouse that is very unhelpful, the kids who are disobedient, the customer service person who makes the problem worse, the friend who never seems to listen. Why do we struggle to love? Because they're not worshiping the same idols as you. We've described parenting that way. Like the, the problem with parenting isn't that our kids have idols, it's that our kids have idols and we have idols and we're not worshiping the same ones. Because what would seem to make my life great is if you would all worship my idols. Then I would think that life would go well. That's what we want if we really think about it. So how do we overcome this? Not first by thinking about our relationship with people, actually, but focusing on our relationship with God. I mean, if you notice in our passage, one that addresses our relationship with other people, he doesn't actually say too much about other people. The one thing he says over and over is love one another. But he doesn't say like, you know, you know, he doesn't give communication skills to make relationships better. He doesn't offer methods of conflict resolution. He doesn't talk about mediation or figuring out who is right and who is wrong, even though those things could be helpful. <clears throat> but the reason he doesn't talk about them is because they don't actually lead to heart change. That's why he focuses on our relationship with God. He's talking about God's love, his trustworthiness, his forgiveness. Which is why when he says in verse 19, we love... He's likely talking about our love for God and for others. Because in the previous verse, he says, we don't have to fear God's judgment. Rather, because he loves us, we can love him. And from that love, we then love others. So kind of listen to it in context, and you'll kind of see it come out here. Verse 19, he says, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Okay, so what is John saying? You can't pretend to love God and hate someone. It doesn't work that way. And he's not just saying it's not right to love God and hate someone. He's saying it's impossible. You're literally a liar. If you love God, you will love your brother. And the converse is true. If you're not loving your brother, it's because you're struggling to love God. Hopefully it's clear why then in this passage on loving others, John's, John actually spends so much time focusing on us and God. Right? And, and so John is not saying that we love others because they are worthy. He's saying we love others because God is worthy. So consider that for your life. You know that person you're struggling with. 
and it seems like they are so undeserving of your love. Don't love them because they're worthy. Love them because God is worthy. Love them because he's the most important thing in your life. Love them because he loves you more than you can possibly fathom. Love them because he's, he's the one you're supposed to worship and to, to, to hope in. If you do, you'll be able to love your neighbor. So how do we grow in this? Well, again, John's encouragement, just focus on your relationship with God. Like, don't just be in these relationships and seek to be loved. Like, let's solve this. Let's figure out how we can make this right. Get upset when you're not loved like you should. Just believe you are loved. Are loved in Christ and then live out of that. Because you can rest. You have the one person's love that you need, and that just frees you up then to love difficult people. Because with this understanding, love doesn't have to be a transaction. You serve my idols, I'll serve yours. You're already loved. You don't need anything else. And in this, we're free to love. As Ed Welch says, when you need other people less, you can love them more. Two quick practical applications before we close. One is think about repentance. Repentance is that idea of confessing your sin to God, turning from that sin, hating that sin, and then turning to Christ. If you don't own your sin, you will be stuck in it. As we say in our counseling class, when there is a lack of repentance, sanctification or change comes to a grinding halt. So if you're justifying your lack of love because of what the other person is or what they've done, then just trust you won't change. But if you own it, you'll experience the grace that God gives to the humble. And second, meditate on Christ more than you meditate on the failings of others. My guess is if you're struggling to love, in part it's because you spend a lot of time thinking about what the other person did or who they are. You turn it over and over in your mind, all the wrong things they've done. But in this, it's almost like you're doing a daily quiet time in bitterness. And it's working. Like it's turning your heart towards your idolatry. So instead, think much of Christ. Like when you're tempted to think about what the other person has done, that's that moment where you got to catch yourself and you need to think about the love of God in the gospel. Study the word, listen to sermons, uh, read good books, listen to worship music. Grow in your love for Christ and trust that you will then grow in your love for others. Let me close with this. I'm not sure how this all sounds. You know, maybe easy, but likely hard. And maybe even as you, you hear this, it's like just knowing that, that you have to love a person that's so hard to love makes your heart heavy. But, but understand, and I hope you kind of get the tenor from this, love is good. It's right. It's better. It is hard. It is painful. But it's where we'll find the most joy. I think it's so easy to think that loving difficult people simply like this, the call of a Christian. It's our burden to bear. In fact, it may even seem unfair to love someone who is clearly not loving you. Or maybe just you've kind of settled into indifference, convincing yourself that you're still a loving person. Yeah, like I ignore them. That's how I love. And then I treat these people who are really nice to me in a good way. Or maybe you just resigned yourself, like I, I won't love them. I can't. And yet, and this is so important to understand, if, if you're going to appreciate the heart of this message, you have to realize that Christians, we don't have to love but we get to love, and because of the gospel, we're enabled to love. How do, we, how do we know this? First, remember that 
because nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, then each and every one of his commandments is an aspect of love. And there was, he looks at you and says, I want to love you. And so I'm going to do this by giving you this command. You love people. That's how God loves us. He calls us to love. And so take that in. The, the God of the universe loves us with a love that is unfathomable. And he's telling you, love one another. Love is both good and is right. And what this means is, again, we don't have to love, we get to love. And I say that get to with purpose because if you really think about it, there is blessing in that. Because as much as all of us know the difficulty of loving others, we also know the pain of it. The pain of anger and bitterness, of hatred or indifference, of worry or indignation. And yet the gospel can free us from all of those things. Do you realize that? You may feel sometimes it's unfair to have to love someone. You may feel tired of just trying to love someone. You may be upset that God tells you to love someone. And yet, let that biblical truth really take root in your soul. Being unloving is never, ever better. There may be a short-term gain. It may make you feel slightly better in the short term, but it will take its toll and it could devastate your life. But if we can love well, we'll know joy. Right? As I've often said, those who are able to love the most difficult people are often the most joyful people. Right? I'm sure almost every one of us can think of examples of people we know who are like that. On one hand, those who struggle to love. And they're always so unhappy, or they're bitter, or they're angry. Someone's always annoying them, or someone has done something, and it just that's always the topic of conversation. And yet on the other hand, there are those who are able to love and there is a joy that is untouched by people, right? And each of us can have that because that's what the gospel does in us. I mean, imagine for a moment this kind of gospel love and what it could lead to. Can you imagine like there was no one you really did not want to be around? Imagine kind of having like that, I can't wait to see them feeling with like everyone. Imagine not even understanding what it, what it means to be annoyed or frustrated because these are all just unique opportunities to love. Realize that's God's hope for you in the gospel. Not just love, but the joy of love. Will you pray with me? Dearly Father, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy. And we thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to consider what it means to love well. And Lord, we confess, first of all, that all of us are people that are, that are hard to love. That, that our own sin makes us difficult to love. But we believe in the power of the gospel, Lord, to not only transform our lives into people who, to live rightly, Lord, but who love well. And so would you do that good work in us? I'm sure there's some who come this morning that have heavy hearts because of a relationship that is so broken or because of something that's coming up with the holidays that it's just going to be so hard. I pray, Lord, that they would have hope, renewed hope in the power of the gospel to not change their circumstances, but to change their hearts. And through those transformed hearts, Lord, that they can find the joy of loving well. We thank you and praise you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.